What a joy it is to be back with you again today. If you would, take your Bible, turn to 1 John chapter 3. If you're a first-time guest with us today, so thankful that you are here in God's providence. If you don't have a Bible in the seat in front of you, you will find one. That is our gift to you. And if there's not one in front of you, but in front of your neighbor, you can have that one. Unless your neighbor gets it first, but there's one out there for you. And and, and First John, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, and that's okay, um, is just a few books to the left of Revelation, the last book of the Bible. And so you can look towards the back, and you'll find First John. So if you would turn there, First John, chapter three, and we're really going to begin. In chapter 2, starting in verse 26, if you would stand to do honor to the reading of God's Word. John writing here under the inspiration of the Spirit of Almighty God that has birthed each Christian into his family. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you have received from Him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you, but as His anointing teaches you about everything and and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in Him. And now, little children, abide in Him, so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. If you know that He is righteous, You may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him. See what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. Because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. This is God's marvelous word to you and I today. Beloved, would you pray with me? Father God, we are so thankful that in Your kindness and grace, You would reveal Yourself to us in the pages of Scripture, that You would open our hearts and minds to behold wonderful things from Your law. Father, might You inscribe the truths that we find here on all of our hearts, not for our own glory, but for Your own. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Beloved, I don't think that we can ever come to this point in our week being able to sit under the Word of God and have thoughts of God that reach too high. I think far too often the problem is the opposite. Far too often we allow the burdens that we carry to edge out the glories that the Bible has for us. You see, the Bible isn't first uh, to, to be 
understood and interpreted only by the eye and our cognitive minds. The Bible is to be understood under the influence of the great teacher, the Spirit of God Himself. This is what the psalmist is speaking of in Psalm 119, verse 18, when he says, Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things from your law. Might we never come to the text and think that we can understand it apart from the grace of God. And we never come to God thinking we can do anything for Him that He doesn't first do in us and for us. See, the problem is not that God doesn't have sufficient things to say in His Word to what we experience in our day. The problem is that far too often we are looking for answers to things that are less than what God is speaking about. Ultimately, God is lifting our heads week in and week out through our study of His Word that we might understand who He is and what He has done to redeem us from the fall. But far too often we are dull in our thinking. We, We look near to the earth and we don't look close enough to the text. Far too often... Uh, we consider the success of an individual church by things that we can see with our eyes. For instance, if I were to ask you how many people have really been in attendance in our gathering, some may say, well, over the past several weeks, probably 120, 100, I don't know, there's probably, a, in fact, I know there's a list out in the lobby of how many bodies we have in the seats. But beloved, if we lean into the text, we learn better things. We learn the reality, and I'm not trying to argue this morning, uh, for finish the argument about the intermediary state and, and what happens to us when we die and if we can look down into a congregation. But in a spiritual sense, when we come to the Word of God, we are communing with all of the saints throughout all of history. In a sense, when we come under the preaching of God's Word, the number in attendance are the number that God has named before the foundation of the world. Thousands, possibly millions of people we are spiritually connected to as we submit our lives to the work of the Word. I think that's what the author of Hebrews is leaning into in chapter 12 of Hebrews when he writes, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. He's talking about the giving of the law. For they could not endure the the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so Terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festial gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. For many of us, 
we look, uh, we, we see the movie, and I'm going to move into the text quickly, but there's just, I had two weeks of setting at home with my Bible, so this is what you get. <laughs> For many of us, we look at the Ten Commandments in Charlton Heston and, and, and the giving of the law, and we think, what would it be like to have been there when the law was handed to Moses? And I promise you, beloved, on the authority of God's Word, that those Israelites who were there when Moses came down from the mountain holding the tablets, his face shining in glory, that they would look upon us and they say, what would it be like to be among the gathered, redeemed of Almighty God with the blood of the new covenant sprinkled upon them? What glorious things these people had. What joy we have in coming together week in and week out. And friends, I'm just here to, this is not confessional time for the pastor, but I'll just tell you this. In the time that I've been away from you, my heart was wrenched with how casual we can become. How flippant we are in hearing the Word of God and how we take for granted that we can be here on Sunday morning. What a joy it is to be with you. And I mean that. What a great joy. We have Christ. He is at work in us. There are 10,000 joys waiting for us in this book. I was listening this week earlier to some, well, to some medical professionals talking about how in the medieval times people were People were just so unhappy and so they abused alcohol and, and, and their day and age was just awful. And, but now we have all of this knowledge and all of this education and so we can have more joy. And I just thought, you know, that's odd because the books that you study from are probably in their 15th or 16th edition and the one that we study at, uh, at 810 Austin Street on Sunday morning is still in its first edition. And it's been here in its completion for 2,000 years, beloved, the Word of God is, should be so valuable to us. So when we come just to this one letter, should give it its due attention. What we have learned so far is this. It's 1 John chapter 5, verse 19. I want to refresh your minds. We know that we are from God. And that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The entire lost world is in the power of Satan, is immersed in cosmic rebellion against God, refusing to give God His due worship. Every person in this room at one time was hostile to God, lost, rebellious, God-despising, and God-defying. So then the question is, how can John have the audacity to say to people who in their hearts at one time would have done nothing better than the Jews who crucified the Lamb of God, how can he say of us that we know we are from God? How can this be? What is even more astonishing hasn't come at the end in, in chapter 5, verse 19, but it comes at the beginning. It comes at the beginning when when John tells us the reason for his writing this letter, that he is writing for our joy. We who were God-despising and God-displeasing, uh, we have a letter written to us for our joy. That in and of itself should astonish us. And we have here joy in an immeasurable, 
intangible way. Uh, The joy that stems from genuine fellowship with God. The real and lasting joy. He tells us that that fellowship, that joy, is really hinged upon the advocacy of Christ and His atonement for each one of us. That Jesus died and He stands as our advocate at the right hand of the Father this morning, this moment, pleading His blood on our behalf. What joy there is in that doctrine. He also tells us that we have been anointed by the Spirit of God. That the reason we come this morning believing that Jesus is the perfect Lamb of God, the second member of the Trinity, and the propitiation for our sins is not because we had a great teacher, not because we had a great mama, but because we have a great God who has anointed us and opened our eyes and taught us who Jesus really is. All of these conditions, all of these doctrines in chapters 1 and 2 begin to build like waves pounding over us, encouraging us, adding to our joy. That our joy is never rooted in who we are, but our joy is always rooted in who Jesus is and what God has done for us through the work of the cross. The amount of that joy that we will experience in this life comes roaring into it like a wave crashing against the waves upon this last verse of chapter 2 and really one word, the word righteousness. If you know that He is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him. Now, he's not building a new topic here. He's actually been talking about righteousness all throughout the first two chapters. He wrote in in verse 5 of chapter 1, God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. That God's righteousness, His holiness. Uh, Chapter 1 verse 7, But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Chapter 2, verse 3. And by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments, if we guard His commandments, if we long to honor Him in all of our lives according to His words. Verse 15 of chapter 2. Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. The righteousness of God manifested in our lives ultimately produces lasting joy. We find this out in the final analysis, that there is no fellowship with God apart from righteousness, that light and darkness do not mix, that if we are to have joy, if we are to have fellowship, we must also have righteousness. There is a need in all of our lives this morning for righteousness. What we further find And the economy of God's Word is that there is no righteousness apart from Christ. That not one of us come into the gathering saying, guys, I've got it together. Here is my righteousness. Because at that moment it becomes arrogance and it's not righteous at all. It is only by the righteousness of Christ that we can experience joy in Christ. And so this verse 
Verse 29 is a transitional verse. If you know that he is righteous, you may, have, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. To the question I asked earlier, how can people who were part of the darkness come to a point where we know that we are of God? And here in this verse, John answers the question. He, he says, I want you, beloved, to realize the result of Christ's work on your behalf. I want you to see that as you abide in Christ, righteousness will flow out of your life. Not only do you have fellowship in any external sense with Jesus, but you also have this living internal relationship with Christ where His life is transfused into you and everything that Christ is ultimately as the Spirit is at work in you, beloved, comes out of you. It's not just that you have a ticket to heaven. There's so much preaching that sounds like somebody's just peddling a gospel. A ticket to heaven, but live your lives however you want them to. It's not just that you have a ticket to heaven. You do, beloved. It's not just that you're forgiven, but you are this morning. It's not just that you have fellowship with Him. And for joy's sake this morning, we have fellowship with the Father. It's the reality. What He's pointing to here is that we have a real, vibrant union with Christ. That we really are in Christ and Christ really is in us. And if He is, His righteousness will flow out of our lives in an increasing fashion. The joy that is that we have union with Christ, that we have Christ in us, the hope of glory. John says, you know how to tell if someone has been born of God? Now, if we were to ask the modern evangelist in America, and I'm talking about over the past 150 years, you would get a lot of answers. You would get a lot of fluff. In our family, as we travel with five children, the games that they play in the back seat often just make me die laughing. Because what I hear is them trying to just be ornery to one another, and they just make stuff up. And, and I'll turn around and stop just making stuff up. Man, there are preachers that need to hear that this morning. Stop making up answers to questions that the Bible answers. How do we know if someone is born of God? It's not if they've made a decision. You won't find that all throughout the pages of Scripture. In fact, I believe that there will be many people who will say, I am a Christian. And on the final day, Jesus will say to them, depart from me. I never knew you, you worker of lawlessness. It's not if they give. It's not if they do a bunch of good things. Lost men can do that. It's not if, if individuals are moral and good We know that an individual is in Christ if they are actually emulating the life that Christ lived. If we see His righteousness in them, then we can know that they're born of God. No other test ultimately will reveal whether someone is in Christ. John shows us then the importance here of righteousness. If righteousness 
is important to maintain the external relationship of fellowship. And it is. It's important the way that we order our lives externally. Don't ever let anyone deceive you otherwise. It is important how we live our lives because that impacts the genuine joy we have in the fellowship that we have with God. But the reality is, if it matters in an external sense, it matters all the more in an internal relationship with Christ. That we actually have manifested in our lives a heart that wants to be conformed to the image of Christ. We must guard the commandments we've already heard in this letter. We must love the brethren. We must not love the world. We must avoid those who teach false doctrine. Individuals, and I know I've said this before, but individuals who say, I just love Jesus and the church, I don't care about doctrine are articulating publicly a lack of love for the church because the Apostle John says that we are to flee false teachers of doctrine if we really love the brethren. It's interesting how he puts that we must be careful. He, uh, it's interesting how he puts this, how he says, verse 29, we really have to pay attention to this because I think it's misinterpreted with just a, a glancing look. If you know that he is righteous... That is, if Jesus is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices, who does righteousness, has been born of Him. And so we need to be careful as we interpret this passage not to pass judgment on someone too quickly. If what he says here is if you see someone who is living a Christ-centered type of life, if you see Ultimately, the righteousness of Christ flowing through a person, you mark it down, that person has been born of God. What he doesn't say is that everyone who is born of him does righteousness. No, he says it the other way. He says everyone who does righteousness is born of him. Again, we need to be careful about this because of this reason. When we come to Christ, as we come to Him in faith and repentance and we begin to mold our lives as God is at work in us around the Word of God, it will take time as He sanctifies us. And so as a a, a baby Christian has not grown to the point of someone who has been in the faith for 30 years or 40 years. And so it may look a little bit different. And we don't come to someone who is professing Uh, faith in Christ on the second day of their walk with the Lord and say, well, I don't see enough righteousness yet, leave. That's not what this verse is meant to convey. What what it is meant to convey is in the positive. He's saying to people that he believes are in Christ, listen, as you look into the body and you're trying to discern who is and who is not in Christ, the way that you can mark it positively that someone is in Christ is if you see the righteousness of Christ flowing out of them. If you see Christ's work in them. So more than anything, if if we're going to analyze that, we need to know this. What does that righteousness look like? There's a thousand forms uh, of, of what individuals will conceive of who Christ really is, but the only real way to understand who Christ is and what this righteousness is, is by looking to the Word of God and deducing that there are some differences between the life of righteousness that John is talking about here and worldliness. And and the first thing that I think we have to get our minds wrapped around is what he's not talking about. 
He's not talking about righteousness being morality. He's not talking about righteousness being living the good life. He's not talking about righteousness being that of living according to some cultural standards. Saying yes ma'am and no ma'am and yes sir and no sir is not the righteousness of God. That's cultural. And it's not wrong to do those things, but that's not what he's aiming at here. He's not aiming at morality. He's not aiming at living a good life. He's not aiming at a cultural set of values. How can we know that? Because the entire lost world ebbs and flows in the moral morass of these kinds of things. There are moral people. There are good people. There are, there are those who live according to the cultural rules of their particular society and yet don't know Christ. There are individuals who love their children, who honor their marriage, who pay their taxes, who obey the civil magistrate and do what the laws in their society tell them to do. And yet they don't have the life of Christ in them. So that can't be the righteousness that he's talking about because lost people can live in those veins. And for far too often, I think we've been promoting a gospel that says be moral, live good, live according to the cultural standards, and then you are righteous. That is not the gospel. Righteousness in this context means... That you live a life flowing from all of the person and work of Christ. So this morning I can't tell you succinctly all of what righteousness means. Because what it means is everything recorded in the word of God about the person and work of Christ. That we live lives in increasing fashion that look like Jesus. It it means that in your character and in the kind of living that you have, that you look more and more every day like Christ. It, It means living a life that really does accord with the Sermon on the Mount. I remember preaching through the Beatitudes early on in my ministry in this church. And at one individual came up to me and was so angry that I would preach the Beatitudes that they are actually veins in which we live. That they are imperatives of of the Christian life because ultimately they, they just have to be something that Jesus does in our place and we will never live that way. Beloved, that's hogwash. God has not only given us the external relationship of fellowship with Him, He's given us Himself, His Son, His Spirit. He is at work in us that we might live His life out in our own. That's what righteousness is. Righteousness is the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If you see people living this way, John says, you can know that they have been born of God. The world may be moral, they may be good, they may be culturally acceptable, but they will never live the Christian life. And the Bible actually doesn't call them to live the Christian life. The Bible says that the individual outside of Christ who has not been born anew can't live the Christian life. They can live morally, they can live good, they can live culturally, but they cannot live unto God. Only those who God has birthed anew into His family, who have been set apart in Christ, can live 
in reckless abandonment to the, to the commandments of God. What John is saying here is if you live your life according to what the world has to say, following after your flesh, if you are seeking joy in the things of the earth, you have not been born of God. The type of Christianity for generations that has been proclaimed that says you can have salvation in Jesus. One of our missionaries told me recently on a phone call, there are some people who just get saved, but they never grow in Christ. That's nonsense. The Bible says that if you're not growing in the Lord, if you are not increasing in righteousness, if Jesus' life is not coming out in yours, ultimately, you can mark it down you're not born of God. Now, this is weighty and heavy. It's a burdensome statement, but he follows it up with, I think, the most glorious. And I wanted to divide this into two sermons, but I've been able to preach in two weeks and y'all are here, so I just figured we'd go ahead and do both verses. (laughs) He comes to to the clearing here and he tells us how, how we can have joy in Christ again. He interrupts his argument telling us that telling us that if we actually have been born of God, we will manifest his righteousness. He he interrupts that argument with this wonderful verse. I, I, I would argue it is one of the most breathtaking verses in all of Scripture. And he's going to what he's going to do in all of chapter 3 is he's going to continue to flesh out the argument that he's making. If you do not live a righteous life, if the life of Christ is not in you, then you are not in Christ. He's going to work that out. But before he does that, believing that his audience who will receive his words, he comes to verse 1 and he seeks to encourage them. He says... See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Some of your translations will begin this chapter with a better word than see. They didn't invite me in every translation committee. Um, And that's okay. But I'll tell you, I think the word behold is much better than see. Because it's, it, there's an exclamative there. There is a declaration. There, there is a command. Come and behold. Look at this. Look at this wonderful reality. It, it's almost as if John is a jeweler and he's been showing to us in chapters 1 and 2 these wonderful doctrines. He's been laying before us as a jeweler would. These sapphires and rubies and emeralds and all of these precious things that the people of God have as an inheritance. But then he comes to the beginning of chapter 1 and he goes, hold on, before we go any further in this verse, I'm just going to pull out the hope diamond. The the, the diamond that weighs 45.52 carats and is worth, depending on if it were to sell again, between 200 million and 350 million, you'll never wear this necklace, Sarah. I'm going to show to you, you're worth it, I'm just not. Um, 
I'm going to show to you this beautiful stone. This gorgeous reality of the Christian life. This, this diamond, this gem that if you hold it in the light different ways will gleam and you'll never be able to wrap your mind around all of what it is. That's what we find in this one verse. He says nothing compares to this. It's almost as if he comes to tell us that, look, those who go out from among you were not of you because they were never indwelt by the Spirit of the living God and the righteousness of Christ was never being manifested in their lives. Don't be discouraged. Don't be discouraged in that. Now pause and behold this. I want you to see what is, Christian, your only hope in life and death. That's what he's saying to us in Verse 1, that you have this kind of love, that the Father has lavished this love upon you, that you are the beloved children of Almighty God. So you are. You are not like the world under the power of Satan. You are of God. You are His beloved, His children, only because He has lavished His love upon you. The world is of their father, the devil, but you are of God. And as we begin to dive into this, and I'm skimming across the top, which I feel like is injustice to this text. God, give us grace because every one of the words found in this verse deserves an entire volume of sermons. He says, see what kind of love, behold, what kind of love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called the children of God. See the love of God towards you, church. Marvel at what He has done for you. That you would be called children of God. And the one word here that we begin with is children. He doesn't say son, which would speak more of the legal relationship. He says technon, which is little children. And this really carries with it two different veins of thought. One is affection, like my dear beloved child. God, the Holy One, is saying to us this morning that we are His beloved possession. That we are His little child. But He's also talking to us of a nature you know, when we go to the zoo, Jace, we never go look at the hippos and think, I wonder which one of those elephants birthed this hippo, do we? Jace is like, no, what are you talking about? Because we know that elephants make elephants and hippos make hippos, right? And God makes of men those after His own nature. Not only... Has God given us, through His love, affection? And not only are we people who, who are deeply loved in Christ so much that His only begotten Son would hang upon a cross for you and I, He also is telling us, look, the reason why the world is still in the power of Satan and you're not is because through the love of God you have been given a new nature. You are something altogether different than you were before. This is everywhere throughout the New Testament. 2 Peter chapter 1. His divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. 
through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. The partakers of divine nature, part of what it means to be a child, one who is born into the image of another. Spiritually, we are born anew in Christ through the work of the Spirit. Or John chapter 15 really bears out the same truth. The reality of Jesus being the vine and we are the branches and everything that comes into our lives spiritually speaking, all of the sap, all of the life, all of the energy to live the Christian life doesn't come from us, the branch. It comes from our abiding in Christ. Everything that we are down to every minute decision and every impulse that we have, spiritually speaking, for the glory of Christ comes from Christ. Also in Romans, excuse me, Ephesians chapter 2, remember... That at one time you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You are, verse 19, fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. We at one time were not the children of God, but through the anointing of the Spirit of God, we have been made His children. Romans chapter 8, verses 16 and 17. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs and heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified in Him. You have a new relationship, Christian, outwardly, and a new relationship inwardly. And John has just taught you this in three words. Children of God. You've been born of Him. We need to look at this just a tiny bit further. What are we as children of God being given this new nature and a whole new relationship with God? What what is a Christian? I'm afraid that far too often, friends, when, when, when someone says, I am a Christian, they think that a Christian is a religious person or a person who is moral or a person who does good or a person who goes through certain rites and rituals that the church does externally to, to, to proclaim someone a Christian. I'm afraid that even in some of our circles we think of Christians as people who have the right theology. But that's not what the Father is telling us here through John's writing. What he's saying is that a Christian is a person who has been born of God. Born from above. Born of the Spirit. To borrow uh, words from John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 13, a Christian succinctly is one who is, not, who is born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That is what a Christian is. If you say, I am a Christian, what you are saying is God took me from being part of the darkness and He gave me a new nature and He gave me an inheritance and He gave me His affection. It's all from Him. We are transformed people. We are a new creation. We are different from the world Because of the Father's will. When the Bible says 
that a Christian is a new creation. There is this imagery that is tied in with the first work of God in creating the universe. Second Corinthians chapter four, verse six. For God, who said, light shi- uh, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What he is saying is, you know, there wasn't a bunch of, there wasn't a bunch of, well, Jace, there wasn't a bunch of hippos and elephants standing around waiting to decide to go on to planet earth. God, by divine fiat, said, I'm going to create light and darkness. I'm going to create the planet. I'm going to create all of these creatures. I'm going to breathe them into existence. And the picture of the Christian life that says, faith is waiting around for a preacher to come around and then ultimately we, make all, we, we birth ourselves through our own volition into the kingdom of God, entirely miss what, what new birth is. New birth is God speaking into existence faith into our hearts. Now, beloved, if you're here this morning and you struggle with that truth, that's okay. Welcome to the club. There's a mystery involved in it. But, but it's amazing to me how many Christians will argue for creation, that God created the world, but the second you tell them that it is God who has to create faith in them, they say, he can't do that. He created all of the stars and all of the planets and everything that creeps on the ground and everything that we see and you think He can't do that in you? Nonsense. Our birth is a creative work of Almighty God which is the answer to the question I'm going to ask. How have we become children of God? See what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God. Two words, big truth, buckle up, we're going to finish, I promise. Given is the first word I want you to see. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. He doesn't say, guys, beloved, behold, look, see what kind of love has been shown to us. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, see what kind of love has been revealed, what has been manifested, what has been indicated, what has been displayed, what has been suggested as a possibility. No, he, 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 he goes a step further. The word didomai, he, he has bestowed this love upon us. He's lavished it upon us. He's given it to us. He has in an intense, active sense, put his love in us, is what the, ver- the, the word really means. Uh, Beloved, this word being in the active and connected to the word theo, which is God, it has a very significant meaning. When I act as a mere man, I have hope that my actions will have their intended consequence. But I can't guarantee that. As a kid one time, there was, grew up in the hills of Missouri, don't laugh at me, there's a possum on my grandmother's backyard. So I picked up my grandfather's $300 golf club that he had just received, and I chunked the golf club at the possum. My intention was to get rid of the possum. That stupid thing just stared at me as the golf club broke in two. The consequence was not my intention. Beloved, every time that God acts, His intention comes to pass. 
Every time. So when He lavishes His love upon us, He's not just begging us. He is doing something in our lives. He's bestowing upon us grace. He is giving us new life. He's allowing us who were at one time dead in our trespasses and sins to see the beauty of the glory of Christ. That's what He's doing. He's not trying. He's not attempting salvation. He's accomplishing it. He has lavished His love upon us and that's how we become children of God. He's bestowed His love upon us. That's how we become children of God. He has given Himself for us, not only for our external relationship, but that He dwells in us by faith. God's nature, beloved, is love. It is His attribute and He has infused into the life of every Christian person His love. It's what Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 5. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now, does anybody want to come up here this morning and describe to me how the Holy Spirit is trying to pour the love of God into people's hearts, but it just doesn't work out? It's not. What the Bible teaches, we are Christians because the Spirit of Almighty God has infused into us His love. John's going to say later in 1 1 John chapter 4, verse 19, we love Him because He first loved us. So the question this morning, do we run to Christ in repentance and faith? Yes. But that running to Christ, that repenting and believing upon the name of Jesus is not the cause of our salvation. It is the result of our salvation. It is the result of the love of God being given to those who were dead in their trespasses and sins, made alive to God that we might seek after the Son. That's the first word, given. It's a wonderful active word. The second word is called. Kaleo, that we would be called the children of God. That we would be called children of God. Some would suggest that God calls everyone. That God is trying to tug at people's hearts. That God is trying with all of His might to bring about redemption this morning. That in churches all across America, God's given it His best swing. He may just miss a few. That does great violence to the attributes of God because our God is omnipotent. He never fails. He has the power to do whatever He pleases. His actions never miss the mark. It also does great violence to the doctrine of the Trinity. And I've already spoken about this, but the Holy Spirit is not a force. The Holy Spirit is a person and He accomplishes all that He wills. Beloved, let me tell you something. I know that theologians have argued about this reality for a long time, but I can tell you this. If you want to divide good theologians from ones you should chuck into the, their works into the fire, not the theologians themselves. That's Never mind. Um, good theologians don't have to do violence to the attributes of God in their pursuit of the truth. Good theologians allow God to be God and they don't apologize to men. So what is being said here is so important. And friend, if you're here today and you have a theological or a religious view of how you became a child of God and that view says that it's dependent on anything in you, that you are somehow responsible for your own salvation, can I make a loving suggestion to you? 
Let that belief, let that theology be dashed into a thousand pieces upon this word. This word that God has spoken. It is a more beautiful word than you could ever imagine. The word doesn't mean that God suggested. It doesn't mean He offered. It doesn't mean He invited. It means He summoned you. He beckoned you. He called you. It's, it's actually rendered in the Greek in the subjunctive for you literary nuts, which literally just means that it is a definite outcome that will occur because of another action. You are called children of God. It's not that you are called to be children of God. You are the called children of God. The whole thing. You are called, summoned. And that is going to come to pass because of another reality. You know what that other reality is? I'm glad you asked because it's contained in this verse. It is that God lavished His love upon you. That is why you're a Christian this morning. You're not a Christian because of your bloodline. You're not a Christian because of your will. You're not a Christian because of your religion. You are a Christian this morning if you are one and living the righteous life because of the love of God. Hard stop. That's the end of the answer. But somebody's going to raise their hand and say, but I have a pastor who said... My question will be, was your pastor named Jesus Christ? And if not, we're moving on. He, he, he has called every person. He has summoned us. He has beckoned us by pouring His love out upon us. We are declared his children. When a king makes a declaration, which is the same kind of uh, usage of the word called here, or when he gives a command that something will happen, it comes to pass. It's not a, a question. We have been called children of God because of his life, uh, because of his love, rather, and only fools would have the audacity to add anything to this verse. Only fools would come to this verse and say, wait, you're telling me I'm called to be a child of God because of the love of God. But let me prop that statement up with some other things. That is absolute arrogance. Let's just rejoice in the splendor of what God is telling us that we are in fact His beloved children with a new nature and with His affection because of the working of His love in us. But as we find, there are many fools in the world. And so John goes on in verse 1 to say the reason why the world doesn't know us is that it didn't know Him. And some Christian's going to say, you mean to tell me that we are in Christ given a new nature and a new relationship to God and we are called children of God by a bestowal of divine love? And you're telling me that in light of that reality, the world's going to look at us and not even care? Yes. I think John would say that's right. The whole world is in the power of the evil one. They can't see any spiritual reality until Christ lavishes His love upon them. Don't be surprised. When you've been given this new nature and this new joy of following Jesus and knowing that you belong to Him and the world goes, you're crazy. 
And the world comes after you. And I'm not just talking about the world in the sense of everyone who is atheistic. I'm also talking about those who would claim to be Christians. Those who Jesus will say on the final day, depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. Those who actually never have been indwelt by the Spirit of God. Those individuals who when you come to them and, 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 and you tell them the only reason I'm a Christian this morning isn't because of my volition, but because of His great love. And they go, you're crazy. Don't marvel at that. You know, when, when, when this morning, our New Testament verse, when Nicodemus asked Jesus, how may I enter into the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus tells him flatly, you must be born again. And then he goes on to say, the Spirit does whatever it wishes. It's like the wind that blows this way and that way. You can't put constraints upon the Spirit. The Spirit will accomplish what He, what he wants to. Do you remember what that religious man's response was? How can that be true? How can it be? Don't marvel at the fact that the religious world is going to reject the notion that God is God and that He can save whomever He pleases. So what is our response? I think it's fantastic because God in His wisdom has given us the response in this text. In the Greek, it's ke-e-me. It's rendered in the English, so we are. When the world looks at us and says, you mean to tell me that God has birthed you anew apart from any work in you and you are saved not because you're moral, not because you're good, and not because you obey cultural norms? You're telling me you want me to believe that? I reject that wholeheartedly. And Christians throughout the centuries have answered in their living, so we are. It's still true. It doesn't matter if the world rejects us. God is telling us in His infinite love that He has lavished His love upon us and that because of that, we are called children of God. We are individuals who have been made and birthed anew. And it is our job then to preach the Gospel to every, every living creature knowing that our Savior will accomplish His purpose in redemption and will save everyone whom He pleases. As we behold this love also, beloved, in each other, as we behold this love that God has manifested in our lives, we begin to actually love the world less and love Christ's righteousness more. And we begin to love one another. And then we will have an increasing joy in the assembly of the saints. And, and, and we will have this reality that we know we are children of God. Not because of who we are, but because God bestowed His love upon us. Might we worship Him for this reality. Not only today but in all of our lives. Would you pray with me? Father God, might we not just pass over this verse, but might it be inscribed into our hearts. If there's one here that doesn't know you today, that, that's lived a life of religious rebellion, that's lived a life seeking to come to you in their own strength and own morality. If there's one here today who's plunged neck deep in sin, would you do what only you can do and open their eyes that they may behold that it is the lavishing of your love that, that ultimately gives us new life. Would you cause them 
to cry, Abba, Father, and, and to turn to You in repentance and faith. For those of us who are in Christ, who have grown dim and weary in our walk with You, might we marvel at this wonderful gem that we have been lavished upon with Your love and that we are called children of God. Father, might we worship You in spirit and in truth because of what You are doing that you might